I want to share with you something um, that's kind of been on my heart um, the last little while. And uh, for those of you who are waiting, um, I will bring in my pottery bowl. It is almost done um, because I have promised that I would share that with you. But what I want to share with you this morning is kind of this piece. Uh, It's a little bit of my past and it's a little bit of where I'm at now. Uh, Many of you have heard me talk about the time in my life where I was really bitter towards the church, where I was really cynical. Um, Having worked in various ministries, and it sounds kind of silly at times for a pastor to say this, and, and someone who has spent their entire working career in ministry, to say, I was bitter and cynical towards the church. And people are like, well, why did you then work in churches, and why did you work in ministries? And I don't really have a good answer other than God called me, and I know that it was a lot of the things in my own life and the lies that I had believed and and bitterness that I had allowed to take root. But working in these ministries and having a dad that was a church planter, um, being involved in church leadership, I saw a lot of what I called the dark underbelly or the dark side of the church. Um, I saw the way people talked to one another. I saw leaders abusing power. I saw church members manipulating leadership. So many different things that I I witnessed in a church setting. People posturing and, and power hungry. Biting comments. Backstabbing closed doors, and I just, as I looked at all of those things, I just thought, man, this does not seem at all like the church that Jesus would have wanted. And I remember saying, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your church. And having to repent of that much later in my life, especially as I became to the point where I was truly serving in a church capacity and as a pastor, knowing that this is who Jesus had died for, But I looked at churches and I just thought there had to be something different. There was just something wrong with this. It's no wonder people don't want to come to church when this is how Christians who are supposedly claiming to follow Jesus act. And that was actually part of the reason why I actually got into ministry in the first place was because I wanted to make a difference. I saw the way churches were operating and and the way they kind of interact and I said, God, if there's a better way, let me be a part of it. For the past eight or nine months, um, I, myself, along with a couple of our elders, we've been meeting with a lady by the name of Ann Martin. And Ann works for an organization that's called Faith Care, which is part of the Shalem Mental Health Network. The reason why we've been meeting with Ann is to gain a better understanding of what is called restorative practices um, and how these restorative practices can help be used to develop healthy and thriving relationships and congregations. I don't want to go into all the details of restorative practices because a lot of it is stuff that I'm still learning and I'm still coming to grips with. But what I'll say this is restorative practices is meant to shift the way in which we are in relationship with one another. And so On the screen there, you're going to see there's four quadrants. And this is something I just want to take a few minutes to give you kind of a basic because this is my heart. This is the heart that we're trying, uh, things that we're working on at an elder's level. And I want you to kind of get an understanding of where we're at. 
And so on the chart, you can see there's, there's four quadrants. And if we start in the bottom left-hand corner, it says low. And that's the bottom. If you're going to go from the bottom left to the bottom right, it's an increase in support and encouragement. If you go from the bottom to the top, it's an increase in expectation and challenge. And so most of us can actually, as we look at this chart, we're able to understand, we're able to put ourselves, our relationships into at least one of these four categories. If you start in the bottom left, so low expectation, low challenge, as well as low support and encouragement, you get what's called the not relationship. This is a relationship that's very neglectful. It's indifferent. It's passive. If you were to move further on the support and encouragement side, so along the bottom, you move towards what is, we call a four relationship. This is a little bit more of the, the permissive. It's enabling. It's kind of allowing people to do their things. We don't want to step on toes, but we want to support people. We want to encourage them, and, but we don't want to hold them accountable. If you're to move up from the low side on support and encouragement and increase in your expectations and challenges, you move to what's called the two relationship. This is a very authoritarian relationship. Uh, it tends to be very controlling and very punitive. Do what I expect, or there's going to be consequences. Do what I say, or you will pay the price. This is kind of the, the mentality that goes with the two relationship. And I would imagine that as you're looking at some of those relationships, you could probably put yourselves in some of those boxes. You've experienced relationships that were maybe a not, they were neglectful. Maybe you've experienced relationships that were very permissive and enabling. Maybe you've been in relationships that were very authoritarian and controlling. And maybe you were the one that was acting that way. Maybe it wasn't that someone was authoritative over you and controlling over you, but maybe you have been authoritative and controlling over someone else. And so with restorative practices, the desire really was for something that was completely different there was an understanding that we could actually be with one another. And so the with quadrant really is, it's restorative. It's authoritative in that there are still high expectations, and yet there's high support and high encouragement. It's no longer a top-down saying, you need to do this. It's a coming alongside and saying, let's do this together. It's an encouraging to say, I expect a lot of things of you. I expect you to be growing and I expect you to be whatever, but I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to support you in that. It's no longer a posturing and a power wielding, but it's, a, it's that joining together. It was this with environment that I so desperately longed to see in the church. As soon as we began to, to talk about what restorative practices were and how this was the desired outcome, there was something that was within me that just kind of like leapt with joy, saying, that's it. That's a piece to what I think God wants to do in his church. 
And so I joke with Anne when she comes and we meet regularly with her, but I've joked with her and saying, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm all in. In fact, I even looked at how it would be possible for me to take my master's in restorative practices. Because I believe this, this is part of what God is calling us to do as a church. This is how he is calling us to be. And so I jumped all in and I believed in restorative practices. And the reason why I share this with you, one, I want you to be aware of the the culture that our our board of elders is moving in. This is the direction that we feel that God is leading, or at least we're, we're, we're exploring. How do we get to this place we're with one another? But the other reason I share this with you is because I, it's this response that I had to this restorative practice that John is actually inviting us into in terms of a relationship with Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring John's accounts of the miracles or the signs of Jesus and how it is through these signs and these miracles that we're invited into a place where we will believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. That He is the Messiah. And that through Him, we can have life. This morning, I'm going to ask you, and I shared with you if you were here last week, that there's a word I want you to know. It's a Greek word. And it's the word that we have translated in the English language as believe. Can anyone tell me what it is? Pastuo, that's right. The word that John has written as believe is this word pastuo. And unfortunately, our English language sometimes lacks depth and clarity of a word. I love talking to people as they're translating different languages, as people who are thinking in Spanish. When Kim came back from Mexico, we were talking in the office this week, and she was sharing some things, and I had to pause because... One, she started to sound like she was talking with an accent. And a couple of times she would start to speak into like this Mexican, Spanish kind of language, like thought process. And she had to pause and stop and say, okay, what is it that I'm actually trying to articulate? And so we've translated this as the word believe, but it actually carries a deeper meaning or a little bit even more of a fuller meaning that we can pull out of it. And I wonder if you, can re- if you remember what it is. Oh, it was there for a moment. Come on. To go all in, yeah. To trust or to surrender completely. This is what John is inviting us into. He is inviting us into a place where we put our complete trust and surrender in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, the one who brings life. This morning, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to to John chapter 5 as we continue to look at the miracles of Jesus. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15 reads this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, 
the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Our passage starts out with John telling telling us that Jesus is in Jerusalem again. And he's there for one of the festivals. And we don't know which festival Jesus is in Jerusalem for. There were a number of festivals that the Jewish people would return to Jerusalem to celebrate, but John doesn't give us the indication of which one this is. And so in John's mind, it really doesn't matter. The importance of the festival in this case is is secondary. But what John does tell us is that there was a pool near the Sheep Gate, and it was called Bethesda. And there's a couple of interesting things I want to note about this. The first one is this, is that Bethsaida means house of mercy or house of grace. And it's a place where Jesus' grace and mercy is revealed. The sheep gate, this is where the, the people would bring in the sheep that were used in the temple for sacrifice. You'll remember if you've read through your Old Testament that that God had demanded of the people of Israel that they would sacrifice as atonement for sins. And so they kept the sheep out in the fields and yet they would have to bring them into the temple. And so this was the the gate through which the sheep were brought. It was also the gate through which the sheep, the, the, the scapegoat on which the sin of the people was placed and where it was released into the wilderness where they would send it out. And so this is a foreshadow of what is coming. As Jesus enters in through the the sheep gate, it's a revelation of him being the sacrifice that will one day be as he sacrifices himself on the cross for us. The next thing is, is that these pools were often used by travelers as they came to Jerusalem so that they could purify themselves. In order to be able to come to the temple to worship, you had to to be ceremonially clean. You had to have purified yourself and had washed. And so this was a place that travelers who didn't live in Jerusalem could go. It was also a place where they believed that they could experience healing and wholeness. And so oftentimes it was a place where the lame, the beggars would come and they would gather. 
One, because it was a great place to see people who were coming, who were coming to be purified and to go to the temple worship. And so maybe they would be able to guilt them into giving them something. But it'd also be a place where the, maybe the lame or those who needed to be healed could find healing themselves. And so John tells us that Jesus has come to this pool. And we don't know if John, Jesus came to the pool to purify himself. Maybe he had been on this long journey as he got to Jerusalem and he, he realized that he needed to be made clean. And so that's why he was there. Or maybe he had come for the intention of, of healing someone. But whether Jesus came with the explicit intention of healing someone or if he came just to purify himself, he finds himself in a large crowd. And the large crowd is full of people who are blind and lame and paralyzed. And this is not an uncommon occurrence at these pools, as I said. These were the places where people would come, they would cleanse themselves. But there's a little bit to it where these crowds believed in superstition and had this understanding that if somebody had been healed there, then maybe I will go and my turn will come. If I do the same thing that that other person who experienced healing did, I too can experience healing. If you were paying attention as we were reading through the Scripture and depending on your verse, your version of the Bible, you would have noticed that there was no verse 4. And part of that is because a lot of scholars don't believe that verse 4 was part of the original manuscripts. But you may have in your Bible a footnote that tells you what it says. And so some manuscripts say this. They continue on in part where it says that there were those who were lame and paralyzed. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after such a disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And so this was probably somebody's footnote or, or a comment or a, a side note as they were writing in, giving a better understanding of what John was saying as they were translating later. But it does give us an understanding of what was going on. This is why the people were there. They believed that an angel would come and stir the waters. And then when they got in the water, if they were the first person in, they were to be healed. So these are some of the interesting things to know. This is the context in which we find ourselves. It's a festival. We don't know which one. Jesus has come in through the sheep gate to a pool, a place where people experience or believe they could experience healing and where they could purify themselves for temple worship. And there is a huge crowd of people all around And John is going to begin to reveal some things about Jesus. And the first thing that John reveals about Jesus is his compassion. The man has absolutely no clue who Jesus is. He doesn't recognize Jesus. He doesn't even know the healing power that is standing before him. As you continue to read through John's Gospel, you're going to find it at different times that Jesus became so well known for his healings and for the miraculous powers that he had that people would come from all over. He couldn't even have dinner with his friend Lazarus because people were coming to see him. 
And yet here is this man who has absolutely no clue who Jesus is. He's never heard of him. He's never heard of his miraculous power. We have no clue why Jesus chose this particular man. It just says that Jesus saw him and he learned of his condition. What always strikes me about this is that Jesus saw the man. This is an explicit statement that John makes. And the reality is is that Jesus sees us. When Jesus was looking around, he had a knowledge of that person. And as I'm reading through this, and maybe you would have a similar response, I was reminded of Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 says this, it says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Despite knowing everything about us. And I want you to think about that for just half a second. The reality that Jesus knows everything. He knows when you get up. He knows when you lie down. He knows your every thought and action. Your every word. He knows when you're in traffic and you're cussing out the next driver. Even when you don't explicitly do it. He knows those dark thoughts that you have. He knows the pain and the suffering. He knows everything about us. And despite knowing everything about us, Jesus chooses to extend his healing and his compassion towards us. And Jesus chose to extend his compassion to the man. And he asked the man, he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? And as we're reading that, it's kind of the question like, of course, Jesus, why would you even ask the question? Here's the guy, he's waiting at the pool to get into the water so that he can be healed. Of course, the man wants to be healed. But I want you to consider this question and the reality that this man has lived with this infirmity for 38 years. To put this into context, I'm 38 years old. My entire life, I would have lived with whatever it is that this man has, whether he's paralyzed or lame or whatever sickness. Some of you have been married for 38 years. It would be difficult to suddenly start a new life. How many of you have been attending this church for 38 years? This way of living was all that the man knew. He was used to being at the water, being close to the pools and begging for money. Maybe the reality of a renewed life would have been too difficult to actually bear. Maybe he outwardly was saying, I want to be healed, but inwardly he was actually a little bit thankful that he never got to the pool. What would that mean for his life? What would it mean if he was suddenly healed? For 38 years, he hasn't worked. And suddenly now, he has to find a job. 
He tells us that for 38 years, we don't know how long his family waited with him, but now he has no one. His family had given up hope, and how would he return to his family? Do you want to be healed? The invitation to the man, there was a question, and it's a valid question. And then we have the same invitation. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made new and have new life? You might not be lame. You might not be paralyzed. You may not even have any visible signs of woundedness or hurt. But I would wager that every single one of us, I don't even have to wager, I am confident that every single one of us has woundings and hurts on the inside. We have areas that are in bondage to sin that God longs to bring freedom to. And I wonder sometimes if sometimes Jesus just needs to ask us, do you want to be healed? Because often we're, we're really content in where we're at. Because the reality of what Jesus might offer us is a little bit scary. There's a little bit of a fear and a doubt as to what Jesus could bring. Do you want to be healed? Do you want new life? If you look at how Jesus responds to the man, or the man responds to Jesus, he doesn't even answer Jesus' question, does he? Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man's response is that he begins to give all of the excuses for why he can't be well. I have no one to help me. Everyone has given up hope on me. I can't get to the water. Can't get in. Everyone, somebody beats me there before I can get there. And the man had absolutely no clue of who was standing before him. Of who was speaking to him. Who was offering him something great. In Jesus, there is healing and there is wholeness and there is life. But this man was so caught up in empty superstition and empty religion and things that couldn't heal him. And I love this because Jesus ignores all of those things. Jesus ignores the empty religion. He ignores the superstition that if somehow the man could get into the water, he would be healed. And he ignores the complaint. There is no one here to help me. And he shows his mercy to the guy. He extends his compassion. The next thing that John reveals about Jesus is this, is he reveals the power of Jesus. Jesus tells him, get up. He's ignored his complaints. He's ignored the superstition. And he's extending his mercy. And he says, pick up your mat and walk. 
And Scripture tells us that once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. One of the things I find so intriguing about this is, once again, it's our English language, but some scholars would argue that when we're referring to this, it's pick up your mat and keep walking. The words that John is using, is it carries this implication of living. Jesus tells the man, get up and live. What you were doing before was not living. Get on with the life that you were created to live. But whether we understand Jesus' command as a one-time thing, get up and walk, or whether it's meant to be a Go on and continue walking, continue to live. What we see is this, is we see that Jesus' command is instantaneous. His power is both immediate and sovereign. When Jesus speaks, muscles and bones that have been atrophied for 38 years obey. Can you picture yourself there as the man who has been healed? Put yourself in that position. Your legs have completely atrophied. After 38 years, there'd be no muscle. There would be like nothing. You would just be skin and bones. And as Jesus speaks and he declares this, he says, pick up your mat and walk. Muscles would have extended. They would have grown. They would have been reformed. They would have, been, they would have come back to the way that they were supposed to be. This is truly amazing. I I wonder what the people sitting next to this man would have thought as they saw his legs return to normal. How amazing was it that when Jesus spoke, the man's body responded. Last week we looked at Jesus healing the official son In John chapter 4, it said this, it said, When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Jesus' power to heal was both immediate and it wasn't limited to distance. We know from the Scriptures that Jesus was at least 15 miles away from the official son when he healed him. Jesus didn't even have to be in the presence of the boy to to bring healing and restoration to him. And in this moment, we see that Jesus' power is not limited to time. It's not limited to the fact that the man had been paralyzed or lame for 38 years. He had been sick for 38 years. It did not matter when Jesus spoke, he was healed. What seemed to be hopeless for so long was no match for the grace and power of Jesus. And this is the power that is at work in the kingdom of God. Restoration and wholeness are the evidence of the kingdom of God moving in power. Not only is it the evidence of the kingdom of the power, and God can move certainly more than just in those moments of healing and restoration, 
But this is the call that God has given to us as a church. This is why I believe so firmly in these restorative practices. Because God has called us to be a people of restoration and reconciliation. It is through His power that He is bringing wholeness. Believe that it is in the healing and the wholeness that comes from allowing Jesus to bring healing to us. To both the visible wounds and to the wounds that have been buried deep inside of us that we are able then to come to the place where we ourselves can bring wholeness, where we can bring restoration, where we can be a people who are with one another. If you think back to the, the, the chart up there, and I think of the authoritarian model, and it's very controlling, it's very punitive, and it's if you don't do what I say, I'm going to punish you, And I can think of how so many of our hurts are the cause of that. I've been wounded and so I am not going to trust someone. I'm going to demand my way. And yet Jesus longs for us to come alongside him. He comes and he offers us life and wholeness. And it's in that wholeness and it's in his healing and his restoration through his power and his power alone that we get to move out of that. We get to deal with the hurts and our woundings. Jesus is longing to bring in His kingdom for us to experience the restoration and wholeness of who He is. The third thing that John reveals about Jesus is this. It's His glory. John tells us that the healing took place on the Sabbath And the Jewish leaders were upset. In our culture, the the concept of a Sabbath really has seemed to have lost a lot of its its oomph and its power and its place. After church, you you may go out and and maybe Sunday is not your Sabbath and I often get accused of not having a Sabbath, but my Sabbath is Monday. But we get so busy doing everything else that we forget that Sabbath was meant to be a time of rest and to enjoy and worship God. And so we sort of just kind of push it aside. But for the Jews, the Sabbath was one of the things that was the cornerstone of their faith. It was of the utmost importance. And it was so important that they had the laws about it. And every time they they had a law, and, and there'd be people who would try to find loopholes. And we're really good at finding loopholes, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't do that, but I sort of did this. And so the Jewish leaders would begin to put more rules and regulations on the rules that were already established. They would continue to add rules and regulations so that there was no way possible for you to do anything but observe the Sabbath. Some of these regulations actually didn't even make sense anymore. And we see it. You can't even carry something. If you carry something from your house to somewhere else that you're going, you were guilty of being stoned to death. And yet Jesus asks, tells the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Walk. 
on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't care. He's not negating the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't tell us to disobey the Sabbath. But he's revealing his glory. He's revealing his power. He's revealing that he is the Messiah. And of course, the man gets questioned because what are you doing? You're supposed to be a good Jew. You're supposed to follow all of the religious rules. Do this. Don't do that. I think of the, the song Signs. How many of you guys remember that one? Yeah, some of you do. Signs here, signs there. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? This is what the Jewish leaders were saying. What are you doing? Who do you think you are breaking our rules? The man gets stopped. And all I can picture is this man going, yeah, but have you ever done that? Or your kids have done that? My kids do it all the time. Yeah, but, and they want to get their word in. You're breaking the rules. Yeah, but Jesus healed me. He didn't know who Jesus was. And so Jesus is creating this conflict in the man. There's this tension. What is the man going to do when he is confronted with the religious system of his day? The religious rules. And the man responds, the man who made me well told me to do it. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read this. It says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah was prophesying that when the Messiah came, the evidence of his arrival would be marked by the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf being unstopped, the lame leaping with joy, being healed, and those with the mute tongue shouting for joy. Jesus healing the man was a public sign that he was the Messiah. And so when the man declared that the one who had saved him, the one who had healed them, told him to get up and walk, it was an affront to the Jewish culture because it was a declaration of what was, had been was no more. Jesus had come to fulfill the law. He was the answer to all of the rules and all of the regulations. It was the, he was, this is the public sign that he was the Messiah. Of course, the Jewish leaders wanted to know who healed him. But the man doesn't even know Jesus. He just refers to him as the man who healed me. But he continues to point to his healing. John then tells us a little bit later in the passage that Jesus finds the man in the temple. And he comes up to him and in verse 14 it says that Jesus tells the man, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
Jesus is coming to him and he says, don't get distracted by your healing. Don't get so caught up in this that you forget what you have been saved from. And sometimes we have this tendency to forget the life that Jesus has freed us from. Jesus has freed us from these amazing things. He has, he has set us on a new course and a new path. And it's easy then to get bogged down in the religious obligations of the system and of church to simply forget who Jesus was and what he's done. And sometimes we turn back to those destructive ways of living because, well, I'm better now, and so I, it'll be okay if I do some of the old things that I used to do. We don't know what this man did. We don't know if, if his condition was brought on by sin. Amanda and I joked, maybe he got in, in bad with a bookie. He placed some bets and he lost and the bookie beat him and destroyed his legs. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but Jesus has come and he's healed him and he comes to the man and he says, stop sinning. Something worse will happen to you. Jesus wants the, to help the man to become whole. He has brought healing, and it was unconditional healing. But he wants the man to see the bigger picture. He wants him to understand the significance of the eternal, of the kingdom of God. And he's inv inviting the man really into the kingdom that Jesus is offering. One where there is life and abundance. One where there is freedom and wholeness. And so as you've experienced healing, keep walking in your healing. As God has set you free from the bondage and from the hurts that you have experienced, continue to press into those things, but, but allow it to always be pointing you back to the compassion and the power and the glory of Jesus. In the end, we see the man go away and tell the Jewish officials that it was Jesus who made him well. There's no indication that this man ever put his faith or his trust in Jesus. It isn't suddenly like he says, yeah, it was Jesus who made me well. We don't know that he believed. But as we look at the encounter between Jesus and this man, John is showing us the compassion of Jesus. He is showing us Jesus' immense power. And he is putting the glory of Jesus on display. And John is also inviting us to know the compassion, to know the power and the glory of Jesus, to believe in him, to step out of our woundings and into his healing, into his wholeness, so that we can find new life in his kingdom. The invitation is always there. It might be scary and you might have fears and doubts about what it would mean to step into the things that God has for you.
But I can tell you that the things that God has for you are good. They are right and they are true. And He longs to bring healing and wholeness not just to your physical, but to your emotional, to your spiritual, to every part of your being. But the invitation is there for you to accept. In a moment, we're going to watch a video. And it's a new video. of a, It's a song that we're going to be doing again in two weeks. But as the words are playing and as you're reflecting upon them, I want you to invite you just to open yourselves up to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, is there anything that you would have for me? Are there areas in my life that you are longing to bring healing and wholeness to? Maybe there are areas that I've held on to and I've made excuses for why I can't experience your healing and your wholeness. Maybe you're just too scared to let go because you don't know what God would do or what your life would become. But Jesus is longing to bring you healing and wholeness this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and I'm thankful that you would send your son Jesus. And Jesus, you are so compassionate. You see us. You see us in our woundedness and our brokenness. You see us with all of the baggage we carry. You see all of our thoughts. You see all of our dreams. And you know us deeply. And you continue to extend your compassion and your love and your mercy and your grace to us. And Lord, you want to exhibit your power and your glory in and through our lives. Not because of anything we have done, but because of who you are. So this morning, Lord, we come to you. We surrender our lives to you. We allow you to move and to work. May you be honored and glorified, Jesus. Amen.